We've been talking to Dr. Chris Smith about SARS-CoV-2 since the early days, back when it was still called the novel coronavirus. Way back when, if you said the word pandemic to people, most of them would think of a not-very-good zombie movie from 2016. Here we are, talking about the issue in the more innocent time, 11 months ago. The coronavirus, known as 2019-NCOV, has now been detected in Japan and Thailand, the United States, Korea, South Korea, possibly Australia, causing 26 deaths so far in China, where at least 800 people have contracted the virus. A problem for one country is not going to stay in that country. When it's something that can spread like this, it will very quickly spread around the world. So it's a global problem and it needs a global solution. Human-to-human transmission has been confirmed. Many airports are now introducing screening for passengers arriving from China. I think that there is a real risk with the population dynamics that we now have and the scale of the population that we now have and the scale of the population density that we now have, that there is a very real risk that we are cruising for a biological bruising more than we were in the past. And air travel is certainly a catalyst. It's also causing concern on the world's stock markets and there are fears of a global pandemic to rival the SARS outbreak of 2003. Because no one in the population has seen that agent before, they have no immunity. So everyone is vulnerable and the agent can spread very rapidly indeed. And if it does turn out to have a high mortality rate, that means it can kill a lot of people very quickly. And that was then. And so sadly it proved, at latest count, there's been more than 74 million cases and something like 1.7 million deaths. Dr Chris Smith joins me once again. Hi, Chris. Hello, Kim. Just thinking back, what has most surprised you as this whole story has unfolded? Well, I guess that I was right. <laughs> I'm very relieved listening to those <laughs> clips, actually, that um, so, some of what we said was was right right at the early days. Yeah, but, we um, edited out the embarrassing oh, the, but the dodgy bits, and, yeah. Uh, inaccurate predictions. Yes. Yeah, mo- most of it then. That's why they were so short. No, I mean, on the whole, um, it, it, it has surprised me that it's still going on. I thought that we we would have the intensity that we had. I thought that we would have the problems that we've had, but I thought we would have nailed it by now as a, as a global issue. And the fact that it is still going on, that many countries are still struggling in a really big way. I mean, this week, Germany are declaring a thousand dead a day. Um, very big numbers, very, very uh, sad. And, and you know, the, these are very, very well-developed countries that have seen it not once, seen it twice, now seen it for the third time. And, and so that's a kind of surprise. I thought we would have been able to bring this under control a bit sooner. I'm surprised, though, that the, the speed with which the vaccine w- was successfully brought to market, because that really is incredible to go from nothing, not even knowing about this virus, not even knowing what it was, what we were dealing with, what it was capable, capable of, to get to a stage where we have a vaccine that is actually going into patients. The UK was the first country to do that. The US uh, followed suit with Pfizer's vaccine. And today, the uh, American company Moderna, who have another genetic vaccine, a bit similar to the way that Pfizer's vaccine work, that was also approved in the US by the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration there, which means that that vaccine too 
will begin to go into people in, in America pretty quickly. Just let me ask you, when you said you thought that it would be uh, under control sooner, how did you imagine that that would happen? I thought that in the same way that we brought SARS Mark I under control, that uh, we would learn learn how it spread and that the measures that would be implemented to control it would control it, bring it to a halt, and then it would fizzle. I thought when we first got into this that that's basically what would happen and that come summer in the Northern Hemisphere, that would really put the brakes on and it would rein it in. Those were my initial instincts when, when it began to unfold in January and February. By the time we got to March and April, though, I began to have doubts about that, but we were still optimistic that we could we could bring it under control with various public health measures and so on. Now, now we realise that that's going to be really very difficult and we do need these vaccines in order to stop this thing. And why do you think the vaccines have emerged so much more quickly than anybody anticipated? Well, to bring any kind of drug to market takes about 10 years normally and about $10 billion. It's, you know, it's, it's a very long drawn out process borne out by necessity because it's got to be safe. Not only does it have to work, but it's got to be safe in whatever it does. And What's been done is just stupendously clever because they've managed to get these things made to make vaccines that we've never used in this sort of way before. These are RNA, genetic vaccines that have never been used in humans before. Get those into people, get them to the stage where they can prove that they work and that obviously we have short-term safety data. We're now building a repertoire of long-term safety data and get regulators to approve them. I mean, that's incredible to, to do that in 10 months never been used in humans before might make some people feel a little uneasy are you worried about what's become known as vaccine it sounds like a euphemism to me but vaccine hesitancy it's certainly a real phenomenon and in the US the Pew Research Centre published some data about three or four months ago suggesting that were a vaccine to be made available to the American public maybe as many as 60% of them would say no thank you and similar surveys carried out in the UK showed a slightly more optimistic picture but still there were significant numbers of people who said well actually I'm I'm concerned about this and one of the most oft cited reasons for being concerned is that people are saying this has been done very quickly have corners been cut I'm concerned that uh, in, in some way safety could have been overlooked or a blind eye turned in order to get this thing out there so that there certainly is this uh, phenomenon it's more acute in some countries than others i think though that certainly in in the uk and possibly in the us this will happen but in the uk because we've got this going into people already and it's going into people who are at very high risk from catching the disease and if they catch the disease they're at high risk of having consequences of catching the disease those chiefly are the older people those people are tending to be less skeptical and they are being vaccinated by the tens of thousand and they they are all going on national television saying I feel already a weight is being lifted. Obviously, they've got to come back for their second jab in a month's time. But I think what that's going to do is to instill confidence because people will see that those people and often their friends and relatives, their aunts, uncles, grandmas, granddads are going to be getting this and they're going to say, well, actually, they're OK and they're, they're not uh, suffering any kind of side effects and maybe it is OK after all. So I think because of the way that it's being rolled out, some of this problem is going to be solved by the good news that comes from those risk groups.
And yet your Prime Minister is mulling over, it seems, another national lockdown maybe after Christmas. Well, it may become a necessity because we've had some areas of the country which have suddenly seen explosive growth of cases again. This was announced, it really caught the media by surprise with their pants completely around their ankles on Monday because Matt Hancock, the health secretary, stood up in the Houses of Parliament and was talking about what's going on with coronavirus and said, and by the way, we've detected a whole new variant of coronavirus which is popping up in the southeast of the country. Uh, We've detected it, we've told the World Health Organisation it's a mutant. And there was no briefing information. There were no press releases given to the media. It was just this statement put out there with no background information. So you can imagine this this fueled intense speculation, totally hijacked the front pages of all the newspapers the following day with a, a mixture of different sorts of scare stories. And we weren't clear whether they'd done that because they wanted to sort of scare the public a bit into not misbehaving themselves over Christmas because the government had committed to saying, well, we're going to we're going to relax the rules for five days over Christmas. So people are, are going to get together. Maybe this will help to, to keep a lid on that or or whether it was just that they didn't want the, 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 the story to get broken the wrong way, as in somebody just says, hey, by the way, there's a, a new variant circulating and the government aren't telling us about it, which which may arguably be worse. But um, as a result, there was quite a lot of speculation and we're not altogether concerned about this new variant, but they've attributed the, uh, the possibility that it's, it's, we're seeing more spread and, and a big surge in cases in some parts of the country because this variant might be more transmissible. They don't know that it is. There's speculation that it might be. Matt Hancock said that there's no evidence that it will not respond, the new variant, will not respond to the vaccines being rolled out. And indeed, uh, Tony Fauci said on 9 to noon yesterday that there is no evidence that the coronavirus is going to turn into some kind of influenza thing for which you have to change the vaccination every year. But why not? Why won't this variant circumvent, as it were, the currently available vaccinations? Uh, flu viruses change quite quickly. They're a totally different structure of virus that works in a totally different way compared with coronaviruses. And part of the modus operandi of flu is that it does evolve or as it's known, drift continuously. And this fairly rapid evolution of the virus gives it an additional sort of string to its bow. Because when people become immune to one of its relatives, then if you change and you look different, then you can come back and infect people again and again and again, which is what flu does. And when we start vaccinating people against the flu, we basically mount an immune wall against whatever we vaccinated them against, which encourages the virus to mutate more. And therefore it changes in a way that won't actually be prevented by the vaccine. But the way in which coronaviruses grow, in fact, they're quite good at maintaining the integrity of their genetic message. So they don't tend to have a very high evolution rate in the same way that flu does. In fact, the new coronavirus is changing its genetic code at the rate of two genetic spelling mistakes per month on average, which is really very slow. I mean, that's glacial rate for viruses on the whole. And for that reason, they're not genetically labile. They're not agile like flu is. And so therefore... They can change. All viruses mutate. We expect that, which is why we anticipated we're going to see variants like this new variant quite often. But they're not going to change in such a radical, dramatic way like flu does that they're likely to sidestep a vaccine 
that quickly. But that doesn't mean that they can't, and that's why they're being tested. And what they'll be doing at Port and Down, which is the biosecurity laboratories in the UK, they will be taking these new coronaviruses, these variants, they'll grow them in the laboratory on cultured cells, and then they'll test whether antibodies harvested from people who've either had the coronavirus in different parts of the country or people who have had the vaccine and made antibodies, whether their antibodies will neutralise this new variant of the virus. And if they do, that's very reassuring. If they don't, or they show only partial protection, that argues there's more of a risk. But it's certainly one of those things we've got to remain vigilant, because once things start to change, then they're moving a step closer to being sufficiently different that they could sidestep the vaccine. At the moment, they haven't changed their structure sufficiently that the antibodies we make when we meet these viruses won't stop them. If, if I've understood you correctly, Chris, you said that were it not for the flu vaccinations, the influenza virus would not mutate as quickly as it does. It will still it will if still mutate quite case, quickly, but what it won't yes, do yes. is oh, what we're what we're doing is encouraging it to 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 mutate and to evolve in a certain direction. It's a bit like herding sheep, right. and if you put a wall in the way and a dog on the other side of the field, then the sheep will run in one direction, and that's what the flu does. When we put an immune barrier up. Uh, what you're doing is narrowing the degrees of freedom in which the flu can evolve and so it tends to move in certain directions. So you, you force the evolution of the virus in a certain direction through the selection applied given to that, then, by the vaccine. Yeah, given that then, are you not concerned that the various vaccinations that the world is now introducing will in effect make the coronavirus more mutable? Well, it, it could encourage its evolution in a certain direction, that's right. And in fact, we think that the new variant that we're detecting is a product of people being immune to the virus because the changes that crop up tend to have occurred because they're basically cropping up because people have some immunity to the virus. And so as people build an immune response, it encourages the virus to evolve in a certain way to sidestep some aspects of people's immune response. So, yes we do think that we're going to be encouraging the virus to move in a certain direction, but whether it will do that sufficiently quickly or enough to sidestep the vaccine, that seems less likely. Because remember, when you make a vaccine, you, you stimulate the immune system to make a whole different constellation of antibody types that recognise and stick to different parts of the surface of the virus. And as a result, even though the virus may change one bit quite dramatically, often there's still enough antibodies in that constellation that you made that will recognise bits that haven't changed and they'll still neutralise the virus and stop it. But in, in, at the same time, it can still build a stepping stone towards another virus that can be a bit more resistant to this. So that's why it's oh. very important we do this surveillance. It sounds like Friday the 13th. I mean, it's always... There's, there's no end to the story, is there, Chris? There's no end to the story. Well, there are about 4,000 coronaviruses out there in nature, we estimate. We've documented 200 of them so far, so there are plenty more rolls of the dice that nature can play, uh, not just with this coronavirus, but with one of those other potentially 4,000 that are out there. And it's done it twice in two decades so far. There's every reason to think that uh, nature could do this again. All right, let's talk about the availability of vaccines. Um, rich countries do appear to be stockpiling. Um, even that nice country, Canada, 
Seems they've ordered enough vaccine to give every inhabitant six vaccinations each. Whereas the poorer countries, the developing world, will, it seems, not receive sufficient vaccinations for their needs. How? What can be done here? Well, there's a really simple economic argument behind this, which uh, I think um, politicians in the know will be very cognizant of, which is that the world runs on global trade, where people have raw materials that they want to sell to people, and this brings important money into those countries, and it brings important resources into the other countries. This can only work effectively and at the scale that we're used to, to provide the revenues that we're used to, and therefore the lifestyle we're all used to, if those countries are all running at the pace that they used to. And if you've got a country paralysed by coronavirus because either people are sick and they can't go to work or there are restrictions in place that are impairing how people work and when they work and where they work, it's going to truncate and cut off some of those supply chains. And so everyone realises that we have this, and I, one of the clips of me from the beginning of the year, I remember saying it was, so this is a global problem, it needs a global solution. People realise that we ignore every other country at our peril because many of the things that we rely on to keep our industries and our industrial gearboxes turning come from other poorer countries. And if they're not working, ultimately we're not working. And if you work out the costs and, the, and do a cost-benefit analysis, it turns out the economic argument is a compelling one. It's much cheaper actually to bankroll vaccinating these other countries at no expense to them at your expense because the cost to your economy if you don't do that actually in the long run ends up greater. And that's not taking into account any of the humanitarian aspects to it. It's just taking into account an economic argument. It seems pretty compelling to me. UNICEF has now secured nearly 2 billion doses, I think, for global distribution. But, you know, a lot more is going to be needed, is it not? Yeah, it, it, it is. But what I will say is that at the same time, there are still many projects in evolution to make vaccines. Some of the vaccines that are currently being used, and specifically the Pfizer vaccine, for example, that would be totally useless in a third world setting because it needs to be stored at minus 80 degrees C. These countries that we're talking about, the poorer countries, they don't even have an electricity supply that they can rely on, let alone a supply of minus 80 degrees C freezers that would keep the vaccine in the condition it needs to be kept in to mean it maintains its potency. So we're going to rely on the other projects that are coming along. I know some of the people who are behind these projects that are working on longer-term solutions of different sorts of vaccines that will be much more ideal horses for those courses that will be very stable, very useful in the field and safe as well. And and therefore, you know, just because Pfizer's vaccine is potentially got a lot of custom out of first world countries, it doesn't mean that people have forgotten. They are working very hard to make vaccines that will be suitable for other countries and will provide the protection that those countries are going to need. We don't hear very much about a vaccine developed in China. No, they've got some trials going on. There's a big trial in South America um, that, of, of their vaccine. It got stopped for a bit because of some adverse reactions, but then all of the major players have had adverse reactions declared, which have subsequently then been found no case to answer and they've been able to carry on. But the Chinese uh, have been selling their vaccine. It's been going into people. I don't think it's actually been officially approved yet um, to WHO standards, but it's, uh, it's certainly been being deployed, but it, it is still being tested. There has been a suggestion that what vaccines do is stop you getting very sick, but you will still get sick and you will still be contagious. 
Is there any evidence of that? Well, it's certainly a theoretical possibility. It hasn't been formally excluded by the trials, or at least Pfizer's vaccine hasn't formally excluded this as a possibility, and it's one of the key questions we need the answer to. The AstraZeneca-Oxford University vaccine, they have been looking at this question, and also in their preclinical trials where they put the vaccine into monkeys, they found that although they could stop monkeys dying of coronavirus infection, some of the vaccinated monkeys nevertheless still caught coronavirus, they just didn't become severely ill with it compared with control animals that were unvaccinated and they did get severely unwell and died. So therefore it does seem to be feasible and it sounds slightly counterintuitive that you can have a vaccine, you can therefore be protected from COVID which is the disease caused by SARS-CoV-2, the new coronavirus. Doesn't mean you don't catch it though, you can still potentially catch it, you could therefore potentially become infectious and therefore potentially pass it on to somebody else. So this is a very important question which is being actively pursued at the moment to find out what fraction of vaccinated people may nevertheless still catch the infection and have it asymptomatically or with trivial infection, not lethal, that's a win for them, but it's not a win for the person they could pass it on to. So it's very important we get to the bottom of this. Oh, crikey, I'd say so. I mean, there goes the vaccination optimism, doesn't it? Well, it, it's certainly a worry, yes, and because the problem is that there will be a fraction of people who can't have the vaccine, there will be a fraction of people who won't have had the vaccine, there will be a fraction of people who have chosen actively not to have the vaccine, there will be people who don't respond the right way or who lose their immunity. They become they remain potentially susceptible. So understanding whether, having had the vaccine, you are either one of them or you could give it to one of them is a crucial question. Uh, for now, we're comfortable that we are giving this to the most vulnerable people in society to prevent death, because at the end of the day, that's why we are trying to get the vaccine rolled out as quickly as possible to the most at-risk people, because it is the death statistics that we're trying to turn the corner on initially, then we worry about uh, how we actually contain the spread of the virus after that. Oh, look, it's been very nice, very useful, not nice necessarily, useful, uh, speaking to you throughout the year. Thank you for your expertise. Um, I'm sure that next year you'll be able to provide the answers to these to these outstanding questions. Are you going to get a break, Chris? Yeah, I am. Um, I'm going to do a couple of I've got some clinical sessions I still have to do over Christmas at the hospital but um, luckily we've made all our programs we're going to make for the Christmas period and they've all been handed over so I have no more programs to do really apart from the odd ad hoc bits and pieces and I'm getting back to my my motor mechanics that I used to do 20 years ago when I was a student and I haven't done for 20 years I've, I've my lockdown discovery was that I'm actually still quite good at this stuff and I still quite enjoy it so I've really pushed the boat out this time uh, I've done lots of cars in the past i've rebuilt enormous numbers of cars engines motorbikes go-karts lawn mowers everything so this time i've really gone for it and i bought a tractor off ebay and <laughs> i've got this thing in my garage and it's it's turns it turns it's its 60th birthday next year uh, so i thought I'd, I'd rebuild that so I'm, i've i've got it going and um and it's yeah it's already proving its worth so i'm gonna keep on working on this vintage tractor that's my my christmas project is the no end to your expertise. <laughs> not so much pushing the boat out, Chris, it's pushing the tractor out. Well, not Very pushing, thankfully. It does run you. quite well. <laughs> <laughs> Dr Chris Smith, naked scientist and virologist of Cambridge University.